Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This is Intercepted. I'm Jeremy Scahill coming to you from my basement in New York City, and this is episode 136 of Intercepted. So we have more cases because we do the greatest testing. If we didn't do testing, we'd have no cases. Other countries, they don't test millions. So up to almost 30 million tests. So when you do 30 million, you're going to have a kid with the sniffles and they'll say it's uh, coronavirus, whatever you want to call it. I said the other night, there are so many names to this. I could name 19 names like Corona 19. In the United States right now, we are witnessing the blowback caused by stupidity, ignorance and anti-science policymaking from the highest office in the land. Coronavirus infections are skyrocketing across the country, notably in states whose governors joined Donald Trump in minimizing the grave danger posed by not taking COVID-19 seriously. Both Trump and Vice President Mike Pence have overwhelmingly refused to take the most basic steps to project a message of responsibility or to encourage people to just wear masks. They have celebrated and spoken in front of mass gatherings of people who have equated wearing protective masks with the loss of their liberty. And now the virus is spreading like wildfire through the states of some of Trump's most loyal followers and supporters. This morning, the coronavirus surge continues in Texas. Infections statewide now topping 150,000 with just over 2,400 deaths. 26 states are already seeing a rise in cases, with 11 looking at a sharp jump of 100% or more over the last 14 days. That includes Florida, rocked by a five-fold increase in daily cases in two weeks. Instead of realizing the deadly mistakes of his administration's response to this pandemic, Trump has spent weeks railing against Black Lives Matter protests, attempting to criminalize dissent, and dreaming up scenarios where he can order police and military forces to operate with even greater brutality. Trump appears to spend more time developing edicts to lock away people who deface or destroy Confederate monuments than he does actually trying to save the lives of Americans fighting a lethal virus. We're fighting really a movement And it's not a movement even that votes. We have the votes. We have everything. But what's gone on and what I watch and I see all the time and I've been watching for the last three weeks is a disgrace. I see him pulling down monuments. They don't even know which monument it is. Donald Trump has used the virus of his reelection campaign to give racist speeches in Tulsa, Oklahoma around the Juneteenth holiday that celebrates emancipation of enslaved people. And he chose a city that was home to a horrifying racial massacre of black people. He's tweeting videos of his supporters yelling white power. And as he does this, and as people continue to become infected with COVID-19 at alarming rates, Trump is obsessively demanding that people who attack Confederate monuments be locked in prison for a decade. No, we'll stop it. Don't worry. Just don't worry about it. Ten years is a long time to spend in prison. The truth is that Donald Trump has expended infinitely more energy trying to protect white supremacist monuments to slaveholders and war criminals who killed and died to protect their ability to enslave black people than he has at protecting the people of this country from a deadly infectious disease. It says everything we need to know 
about who he is and what his administration represents. And now for his next performance, he is going to South Dakota on July 3rd for a fireworks show to celebrate his white supremacist agenda and re-election campaign. Now, none of the four presidents on Mount Rushmore were Confederate generals or commanders. But if you really examine the history of these presidents, and in particular, their actions against indigenous people, Native Americans, including those whose lands were taken so that that monument could be built, then you see that it's actually a perfect location for Trump to take his tour of hate right now. The current actions targeting Confederate monuments has been a long time coming, and it is not lost on the activists agitating for their removal that many of these statues and memorials were built not in the immediate aftermath of the Civil War, but decades later. And the reason they were erected was to reap terror on Black people in this country by celebrating the commanders of a war white Southerners fought in an effort to keep their status as slave owners. At the same time, there are monuments and statues and schools named for people whose crimes predate the Civil War. I'm talking about the military figures, the U.S. presidents and others who are glorified because of or in spite of their role in the sustained campaigns of genocide and displacement against indigenous people in this country. Joining me now is the Native American historian and professor Nick Estes. He is a citizen of the Lower Brule Sioux Tribe and an assistant professor of American Studies at the University of New Mexico. He's also the host of the excellent Red Nation podcast. His latest book is Our History is the Future. Nick Estes, thank you so much for joining us again here on Intercepted. Thanks for having me, Jeremy. So on Friday, Donald Trump issued an executive order on, quote, protecting American monuments, memorials, and statues, and combating recent criminal violence. And of course, this comes as we've seen Confederate monuments coming down. Sometimes activists are pulling them down. Sometimes institutions, through public pressure, have decided to take them down. There's a lot to unpack in that executive order, but I just wanted to share some of how it begins. Quote, key targets in the violent extremists campaign against our country are public monuments, memorials, and statues. It goes on, quote, their selection of targets reveals a deep ignorance of our history and is indicative of a desire to indiscriminately destroy anything that honors our past just your big picture response to this executive order. Trump, he's invoking this kind of idea of lawlessness that has been unleashed by Black-led resistance all over the country and now internationally to make this argument that the very core, the very idea of America as we know it, quote unquote, right, is under attack. Well, first of all, we have arrested I think almost, but it could be over the number, hundreds of people. We have arrested a lot of people for what they've done. They've created uh, bedlam. They've destroyed very important things. I mean, you're also talking about statues of George Washington, Abraham Lincoln. And if there's any lesson that we can learn from colonialism, it involves three things, God, gold, and glory, right? The soft underbelly of this entire project has always been glory. The idea that this nation is built on an exceptional kind of unique history, right? The city on the hill kind of thesis that came out of the pilgrim mythology. And so in this moment, Trump is trying to essentially rewrite history and to say that there are winners and there are losers, right? And it's a very kind of facile reading of history. And I don't think that the advocates that are calling for the the tearing down of these monuments or the you know even the replacement in some instances are saying that you know we should reduce the the history of racism of imperialism to just the civil war but that it's a very complicated history especially when you factor in something like settler colonialism and so in this instance he's saying you know our history deep ignorance of our history and whose history is that and we have to cherish our past. We have to cherish good or bad. We have to understand our past. We have to understand our history. Because if we don't know our history, it could all happen again. Have to know our history. 
when somebody like Trump says, you know, we're here to protect our national monuments, he's been invoking the language of, of heritage, which is kind of like a dog whistle for the it's heritage, not hate kind of speak around the Confederate monuments as well as the Confederate battle flag. He's not including indigenous people in this in this particular rhetoric because our monuments our history as indigenous people is under constant erasure. And to reduce the kind of struggles over monuments, over how we know and how we write history in this particular moment, to just the idea of Confederate monuments or you know Union monuments completely ignores the larger kind of context of US history. And it, it attempts to sanitize it between, oh, we have good colonizers and we have bad colonizers. Hmm. Trump has a rally planned on July 3rd, and the location for that rally is what they call Mount Rushmore. Talk about the significance of of this location, Mount Rushmore, located in South Dakota's Black Hills, and, and what that location means to the Lakota people, and how that monument is viewed uh, among indigenous activists. Mount Rushmore is within a cultural landscape that we know as uh, Hesapa or the Black Hills. And it's kind of a it's kind of a mistranslation in some ways because when we say Hesapa, you know, when we talked about our 1868 Fort Laramie Treaty that we signed with the United States, it didn't just include the cultural landscape of the Black Hills as we know it um, today, you know, with the Black Hills Nas- uh, National Forest, et cetera, and the federal parklands that exist there and the state parklands that exist there. But it actually meant, Hesapa actually means the Black Ridge, which the Black Ridge for us is the Teton Mountains. And so that's how, that's the extent of um, Lakota territory as we understand it and the extent of this kind of cultural sacred landscape. And the Black Hills um, were also a place of origin and a place of cultural and spiritual significance for over 50 indigenous nations. So it's not just our kind of proprietary claim to this particular location. Uh, we were kind of the the kind of final, I guess, caretakers after a lot of these indigenous nations were kind of removed through U.S. policy and, of, of course, inter-indigenous warfare itself as well. And so Mount Rushmore is named after a gold prospector who had illegally entered into Lakota Treaty territory to begin prospecting. And so it's taken on this name from this squatter who came into our land. But then later on, the son of a Danish immigrant, Skutson Borglum, saw this as a, a place to build his kind of shrine to democracy as it became known, or his shrine to American exceptionalism, because he really wanted to capture and to portray and celebrate the uniqueness and the greatness of the United States. And so he picked this location for uh, those very specific reasons to put the four presidents on there. And the characters that we have chosen, Washington, Jefferson, Lincoln, and Roosevelt, are the most outstanding men in the last 150 years in the building of not only the government itself, but in establishing and developing its territorial dimension. This is one of the darkest periods of the reservation period because our language was banned, our uh, dancing was banned, all of our religious and ceremonies were actually banned uh, on the reservation and we were only allowed to perform them for you know national celebrations such as 4th of July or for you know uh, national holidays like President's Day for example or Flag Day for example but Dennis Banks as well as Russell Means you know called this the shrine of hypocrisy anything indian was condemned and punishable and then he developed a program of forcing us off the reservation There's many ways of doing this, of course, economic deprivation. Therefore, we were forced into the cities to look for uh, jobs for existence. Then they introduced the relocation program, where they relocated Indian people from reservations to seven different designated cities in the United States. After the first five years of my life, first six or seven, I then began growing up in the urban environment. And I have yet to meet an Indian in, an, in the urban environment that does not plan on eventually going home. 
Washington was known as a town destroyer. He was given that name by the Haudenosaunee Confederacy because he led a scorched earth campaign against the the Haudenosaunee uh, prior to the Revolutionary War, but also during the Revolutionary War to push them further westward um, to make room, you know, to create Libenstrom or a living space for the new kind of white Anglo nation that was under construction. Every sitting president to date of the United States has the name Town Destroyer from the Haudenosaunee Confederacy. Um, let's let's just break down e- each of them. You you just talked a bit about George Washington. W- what about Thomas Jefferson and his relationship with indigenous people in this country? Yeah, Thomas Jefferson was really the architect of Indian removal, as we now know it as like the Trail of Tears or the removal of the southeastern tribes from what is now the South, what we know as the South in places like Georgia and North Carolina. But he was the one who really envisioned that. And that's why he facilitated something like the Louisiana Purchase, because he imagined moving, basically creating a a large Indian reserve west of the Mississippi River. And of course, that later on became Oklahoma Territory, right? He also envisioned that the entire Western Hemisphere would be dominated by the Anglo-Saxon race. And this this was really the foundation of what we know as manifest destiny, which was a term that was coined in the late 19th century. But earlier on, there was the Monroe Doctrine, right? Which really was uh, drawing inspiration from somebody like Thomas Jefferson and understanding the the kind of unique place of the United States and dominating the entire Western Hemisphere and understanding the Western Hemisphere as the quote unquote backyard of the United States. So let's move, I guess, chronologically then. Um, next, of course, we have Abraham Lincoln. And as indigenous activists have been protesting Mount Rushmore itself, you also have Abraham Lincoln's story, which we hear nothing about his relationship with indigenous people in this country. Right. And even within that executive order issued by Trump, he mentions the vandalization of the Lincoln Memorial and kind of raises the question, why Lincoln? But they're after Abraham Lincoln. And tonight, I guess they're looking at Abraham Lincoln. And that was the Emancipation Proclamation. So you have that and you're signing Emancipation Proclamation and you have somebody, I think, that wasn't freed and he's getting up. It's the position of he's getting up. He's being freed by Abraham Lincoln. And I can see controversy, but I can also see beauty in it. And it was paid for by slaves. I don't know if you know that. It was paid for because they were so grateful to the president. It was paid for that reason. And uh, they want to take it down. Lincoln himself is a very controversial figure for uh, our people because he he signed the, the death sentence for 38 Dakota patriots who took up arms against the United States after a breakdown in treaty uh, obligations happened during the Civil War. The Dakota people in the territory of Minnesota had signed away, you know, pretty much all of their all of their territory um, through this really coerced treaty that basically gave the the Dakota people like a 22 mile strip of reservation land, and we now know that today, like a lot of that land actually became part of you know the Morale Act, which is which is a um, the act that kind of facilitated the creation of land grant institutions. Uh, but then also there at the same time you had in 1862 you had the 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 passage of the Homestead Act, which was an attempt to alleviate some of the mounting pressures uh, happening on the eastern seaboard between North and South um, to kind of open up quote unquote free indigenous land or nearly free indigenous land in the West so that white immigrants could go out there and establish themselves and you know create this kind of yeoman farming empire that was envisioned by Jefferson. And so these were the this was the lead up prior to the 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 Dakota uprising as it's known in 1862. And what happened is because the United States failed to live up to its treaty obligations to this to the Dakota people and they had, you know, given over this these large tracts of land um they took up arms and many of the people who took up arms were pe- they took up arms reluctantly. They had themselves adopted kind of the white 
uh, mode of living. They cut their hair. They went to church. They began speaking English. They sent their children off to be educated in Christian boarding schools. Uh, but none of this prevented them from starving to death, right? And so they took up arms against mainly Scandinavian and German immigrants who were flooding the area uh, because of the Homestead Act and because of the railroad colonization that was happening at the time. And they expelled a lot of them um, within a very short period of time. But as the state of Minnesota you know, reorganized itself for retaliation, they began organizing these irregular settler militias that were composed of these recent uh, European immigrants um, to basically create what we now know as, as the National Guard to crush the uh, indigenous uh, uprising, uh, but at the same time issued scalp bounties uh, for upwards to $250 uh, for an indigenous or a Dakota scalp. And so what happened from 1862 to 1863 was known as kind of the punitive years of Dakota punishment. And to kind of kick it off in uh, just weeks before he signed the Emancipation Proclamation in January, Abraham Lincoln executed 38 Dakota people for their role, whether it was real or imagined in the Dakota uprising in what became known as the largest mass execution in U.S. history. And this happened in Makato, or um, what we know as Blue Earth, and today it's known as, as Mankato. But in, in 1863, Lincoln ordered uh, Sibley and Sully, two generals, to basically crush the the remaining kind of Dakota resistance. And they chased us all the way into um, what is you know now North Dakota, as, as well as South Dakota. And this this campaign, which was known as the campaign or the the columns of vengeance, ended um, with the Whitestone Hill massacre in 1863. It's a massacre that's largely forgotten within U.S. history. And so, at Whitestone Hill in 1863, they converged on a Buffalo Hunt camp. Many of these people had nothing to do with the Dakota uprising. Um, but nonetheless were seen as hostile. Many of them were women and children. The men, most of the men had left uh, for a, a hunting party and then they, they returned to see um, around 400 of their relatives massacred at Whitestone Hill. And the survivors of this particular massacre went on to join um, their Hunkpapa relatives in what is now known as the Standing Rock Indian Reservation. So those survivors of that Whitestone Hill massacre later became, you know, um, the descendants of them became the people who facilitated the uprising against um, the Dakota Access Pipeline. Abraham Lincoln himself also oversaw the Navajo Long Walk, where somebody like Kit Carson was sent to round up all the Navajo people as well as Apache people um, and incarcerate them or imprison them in an open air concentration camp known as Bosque Redondo. You know, there was around 4,000 uh, Navajo people who died um, on the Navajo Long Walk. Of course, there was the, the Sand Creek Massacre that happened in 1864 as well. Um, so Lincoln himself oversaw many of these kind of pivotal uh, moments in not just Indian policy, but also uh, Indian wars of extermination. And when we understand the, the modern kind of like Indian massacre, when that image comes up of like the kind of industrial warfare that was waged against not just uh, enemy, quote unquote, combatants, but also non-combatants and civilians, we it was this particular era that was the defining moment that carried on into um, what we now know as Reconstruction, but also the the quote unquote Plains Wars that happened from uh, you know post war post Civil War to um, the eighteen nineties. Talk about uh, Teddy Roosevelt and the history of extermination, war, and slaughter of indigenous people. Yeah, so Teddy Roosevelt didn't. He wasn't necessarily an Indian killer in the same way as these other presidents in the sense that he didn't really wage a kind of military campaign. His was more so a campaign of, quote unquote, preservation, right? He's seen as, you know, the Sierra Club, you know, figure of like the guy who created these 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 national parks. But for settlers to appreciate nature, indigenous people had to be removed, quote unquote from nature, right, itself. 
And so that's what Teddy Roosevelt did. And there was a complete denial, especially in places like the Black Hills, a complete denial that Lakota, Dakota uh, people had a legitimate treaty claim to this land. And later on, as we as we know, even the Supreme Court understood that because of the Black Hills Act of 1877, the Black Hills themselves were actually illegally taken from the Lakota Nation. They were illegally taken out of trust. They were illegally taken out of treaty uh, status. And this happened under the president, um, you know, the presidency of of Ulysses S. Grant, um, and then became open for white settlement, but also um, for open for the nationalization of large uh, tracts into uh, what we now know as um, you know federal forest lands. The the recent events that were sparked or or given new life, the rebellion, the uprising against police murder of black people in this country, the confrontation of the legacy of white supremacy and genocide upon which this country was built, um, has sent a lot of people back to history to to read about those who came before them. And there's been a lot of renewed interest in the work of abolitionists um, and the work of the Black Panther Party. And you also have this history in modern times uh, of indigenous movements, uh, namely the American Indian Movement, and the way that it was attacked in the same ways that the Black Panther Party or other militant groups were attacked by the U.S. government using Quintel Pro infiltration, false flag operations. Talk a bit about the American Indian movement, its political origins, and what you think would be helpful for people to understand about AIM in the current moment that we're in right now. So the American Indian movement was formed in 1968 in the Twin Cities in St. Paul, Minneapolis. And they formed for three reasons. And this is incredibly important um, for this this day and age as well. They, They reformed to end child removal, which was the taking or the adoption out of Indian children into white families. So in 1969, a report, a congressional report came out that showed that one out of one out of three American Indian children had been adopted out to a white family. Um, the second one was to address poverty, and the third one was to address police brutality or police violence. And this is incredibly important. So many of the founders of the American Indian movement began thinking about creating an organization while they were in prison. The Belcourt brothers, Vernon and Clyde, as well as Dennis Banks began to develop a kind of class consciousness, for lack of a better term, around the, the situation of indigenous people living off the reservation. Well, there are three things. Basically, one of them is to have the United States government began a, a process of honoring the treaties that have been signed uh, with uh, Native Americans. Second would be to have the Bureau of Indian Affairs removed uh, from the Department of Interior because of the tremendous amount uh, of uh, conflict of interest. And thirdly was to amend what is known as the Indian Reorganization Act. This is the act that establishes uh, the puppet uh, councils, puppet governments on the reservations. And we want to amend it so that Indian people on the reservation will have direct control of of the reservation life instead of having all of the policies originating out of uh, Washington, D.C. They began offering job opportunities in cities, whether it was in Cleveland, whether it was in the Bay Area, to get people off the reservation to to essentially begin the process of liquidating tribal uh, collective ownership of land. And so many of these people, you know, were going into places like Minneapolis, uh, Denver. And in, in Minneapolis, of course, you know, you can remove an Indian from the reservation, but just because they're not on the reservation doesn't mean that they're going to stop being an Indian. And so they found each other. And, and just like any oppressed group of people, they formed their own kind of community, their own kind of culture. They first created a, a group called Concerned Indian Americans, which which whose acronym is CIA, which they thought was not not a good fit. <laughs> there was a mistake at the printer there. <laughs> yeah, but it was really just like it wasn't academics, you know. It wasn't like thought leaders of the era. It was really just like homegrown 
working class indigenous people and many of them were women pat bellinger was you know one of the founders of the american indian movement and they decided at their first meeting that they were going to go out and fight the police and originally aim of course was organized to combat police brutality in minneapolis minnesota but it grew because the ideas of self-determination the ideas of, of being able to stand on your own two feet, eye to eye with the white man, and say, wait a minute, stop. And so they created what were called AIM patrols, and they decided they landed on American Indian movement, right? They wanted to be more than just an organization. They wanted to be a movement. Um, so they, they created AIM patrols uh, to basically police the police, right, to prevent them from you know, violating people's civil rights. And and then, of course, as the movement grew, they adopted a kind of more militant stance. Uh, but it was really the, the influence of the Black Panther Party in Oakland and their own cop patrols, as well as the free breakfast program that influenced these kind of indigenous communities. But at the same time, you know, like w- there were kind of unique indigenous political contributions to the movement, such as survival schools. Some of them kind of still exist today in alternative education for indigenous people, but they also help with housing. This is something that was really fascinating to me in the coverage of, of a place like Minneapolis. Leading up to the uprising and the and the the, the killing of George Floyd, the, the conversation that I was hearing on the ground there, not just from indigenous people, but all people in that community, in, in the, the activist sphere in, in Minneapolis was the question of housing, because housing was skyrocketing. Uh, housing prices were skyrocketing. So the, the intensification of police violence always correlates with, you know, profound inequality. And we can trace that inequality in a place like Minneapolis back to its colonial origins when they expelled my ancestors, right? Um, when they created scalp bounties for indigenous people where not just the the kind of policing institutions of the state, whether they're sheriff's deputies or the National Guard, but everyday settlers were encouraged to enact vigilante violence against indigenous people. Those are the origins of the George Floyd protests. And it's it's not lost on us that they're called an uprising, just like the, you know, our our revolt was called the Dakota uprising. We see it as a continuation and continuing on the tradition of the anti-police violence work of the American Indian movement. Nick Estes, I want to thank you very much for all of your really, really important work. You're a phenomenal young historian, and I, I really do that, hope that people uh, follow your work and also pick up your latest book, Our History is the Future. Nick Estes, thanks so much for being with us again. Thanks again, Jeremy. Nick Estes is an assistant professor of American studies at the University of New Mexico. He is a citizen of the Lower Brule Sioux Tribe and the host of the Red Nation podcast. His latest book is Our History is the Future. Nick Estes is on Twitter at Nick underscore W underscore Estes. Protests, marches, and demonstrations against police brutality and murder and against systemic racism are continuing across the United States, and the calls to defund the police and to abolish the prison system as it currently exists in this country are intensifying. The Movement for Black Lives has provided crucial leadership that has brought these issues to an international stage, and the resilience of these activists is a sight to behold, to emulate, and to be grateful for. Over the past several weeks on this show, we have been focusing on these issues with Black scholars and organizers who have done the work of writing the history and telling the stories systematically suppressed, ignored, and left out of history classes and media discourse in this country. People like Robin D.G. Kelly and Ruth Wilson Gilmore. Stop Killing Us is a slogan that we've been carrying 
for centuries. It's aimed at ending state-sanctioned racist violence, but also ending the violence of poverty, the violence of a healthcare system that has continued to reproduce inequality. As people have lost the ability to keep their households and their communities together with adequate income, clean water, reasonable air, reliable shelter, as those things have gone away, what's risen up has been policing and prison. And what we want to do today is to back up and look at the very broad questions of why we have police in this country, why they are organized in the way that they are, and to examine their political power and the ways it has been used as a force to defend the interests of the elite, to crush organized labor, and to reap terror on black and brown and poor communities. We are going to do that today by taking an in-depth look at the origins and history of one of the most notorious and racist police forces in this country, the Chicago Police Department. There is an astonishingly brilliant new book that chronicles this history from the mid-1800s to the 1970s, a book that uses scholarship and primary source documents and testimonials to give lie to some of the most pernicious and ill-informed characterizations of Black people and Black communities to this day. At the same time, the book lays out the origins of the Chicago police as a moralistic enforcement agency established by white land and business owners and politicians with the primary aim of policing the behavior of European immigrants and it soon became a militarized terror force that was used to systematically and violently force black people in Chicago to live in poverty, have their communities used as drug-infested business centers for white organized crime gangs, while simultaneously crushing movements for workers' rights, tenant rights, and basic human rights. The book also tells the often deleted history of black political organizing and rebellion in Chicago— and it offers lessons on how this history speaks to the demands and struggles of the present moment. The book is called Occupied Territory, Policing Black Chicago from Red Summer to Black Power. And its author is Simon Balto, an assistant professor of history and African-American studies at the University of Iowa. Simon Balto joins me now. Simon, thanks so much for being with us here on Intercepted. Thanks for having me, Jeremy. I want to begin by going pretty far back in U.S. history, in a general sense, talk about how police came to be in the United States. What are the early origins of the idea of city police forces in the U.S.? If we're looking at the origins of the police, they primarily were implemented to do one or both of two things, and that is to preserve economic hierarchy or to preserve racial hierarchy. So, you know, in a number of Southern cities, early police forces either grow directly out of or overlap significantly with early slave patrols, you know, surveil and contain and control Black people who are trying to commit the crime of freeing themselves. In other places, though, it looks a little different. So in a city like Chicago, for example, the early police department is developed primarily by elite business owners in the city, with the primary purpose of controlling immigrant behavior that they deemed to be unruly and undesirable. They were especially concerned with the drinking habits of German and Irish immigrants. But their other primary purpose was to suppress labor militancy. So, you know, one of the early purposes of the CPD is to make sure that, you know, workers who are trying to strike for an eight-hour workday or, you know, to better their working conditions, the police force is, is deployed to suppress them. I think it's important for people to understand that when people first founded these police departments, they were not designed to promote some sort of public safety. They were designed with very specific kind of political repressions in mind. And actually, what's funny to me is that back when police departments were first being implemented, in a lot of places, they were seen as kind of literally anti-American. In the 1840s, 
New Yorkers actively resisted the implementation of a New York police department. And the reason that they did so was that the kind of generational memory of having the city be occupied by British forces during the Revolutionary War, the police department reminded people of those occupying forces. And so people sort of decried the implementation of a police department as antithetical to the American vision of of independence and liberty. Let's talk for a moment of the role of the Chicago police in breaking up strikes, attacking organized labor, ultimately then red squads that were aimed at taking down the perceived radicals. I think it's important to begin with the Haymarket Square uprising. Just briefly explain when it happened and what it was about and what happened there. You know, it's 1886. You know, there's been increasing labor militancy and demands for an eight-hour workday and better working conditions, not just in Chicago, but in the larger Chicago metro area and also just across the country. Um, And so with Haymarket, you have a moment in time in which people are are gathered to uh, in in a labor protest and the Chicago police arrive there and it's coming in the wake of increased hostility between workers and police officers in Chicago. And, you know, what exactly happened that precipitated the events at Haymarket remains a little bit of a mystery. But what we do know is that police ended up opening fire on this crowd of workers and ended up killing a number of people, including a number of police officers through friendly fire. You know, it's essentially a moment in time that's really important, I think, for crystallizing wider public support for the police in Chicago, especially among corporate interests. As you write, the Chicago Tribune organized fundraisers for the police and the first pension program for police was organized. That was the first time that that a pension program was organized for the police. It's through events like this where, you know, you have a moment of people who are perceived to be radical agitators or outsiders who the police are called upon to repress people who are organizing to try to better the conditions for people who are underpaid, overworked, who work in hazardous conditions. I mean, it's again, like, what our perceptions of what public goods are is, I think, an important metric for thinking about what police do. Talk also about the the kind of rise of the South Side of Chicago as uh, was described historically as sort of a black mecca with black businesses thriving, cultural institutions, people taking over housing that had been occupied by immigrants, often taking the lowest quality houses and trying to build from that something that was viable and vibrant. When black people move into Chicago during the first Great Migration, It's a city that is structurally designed to disadvantage Black people. And so what that means is that Black folks, generally speaking, are, I mean, in some cases, their own interest of living near relatives or friends or other people that they know. People move to the South Side partly because of those reasons, but they also move to the South Side because people in other parts of the city don't want them. And so that takes the form in some cases of physical violence, you know? So for example, in the late 19-teens and into the early 1920s, I mean, dozens of black homes and businesses are bombed as people try to move into areas that are deemed for white people only. And then that also takes the form of more systematized legal violence. For example, uh, restrictive covenants that are written into housing mortgages, you know, that prevent the sale or renting of huge swaths of the city to people who are not, quote unquote, of the Caucasian race. And so, you know, within that context of limited options, Black Chicagoans build. It's a place of extraordinary Black political achievement, uh, Black cultural achievement. It's the duality of Black history, kind of in a nutshell, of racial repression and then, you know, incredible achievement. One of the narratives or stories that you tell in this book that I found so striking and important for people to understand is the way in which, beginning in the early 1900s, 
The Chicago authorities, the police, the government, local officials, at the time it was in the hands of the Republicans, but then the Democrats would take over and and they govern in perpetuity to this day. But in the early 1900s, Chicago basically abandoned the quote-unquote black belt of the south side of Chicago. They basically create this levy where this is the area of the city where all of this seedy stuff is going to be allowed to take place, where people will need to go to this community to take part in it. And the police are basically going to stay away from it and let the cards fall where they fall. The logic that policymakers and police officials operate under in that moment is that, look, we're not going to be able to prevent sex work. We're not going to ever be able to abolish drinking and so on and so forth. So what are we going to do about it? And what they decide to do about it is that they'll push it into places where people, because of the color of their skin, lack much political weight to do otherwise. So the police are pretty explicit about essentially pushing the sex trade into black neighborhoods. During Prohibition as well, you have you know white mobsters who you know, who set up operations in black communities because they know that the police just really won't care. You know, when we talk about the cultivation of, you know, of vice and other forms of matters deemed criminal, whether they should be or not, it's very much put into place along racialized lines, operating under the racist logic that we can't get rid of these things but we can put them in places that we don't really care about and that other people, you know, kind of the dominant population won't really care about. And so we see that in place, as you point out, I mean, in the late 1800s and onward into the 1900s. Just to to give people a statistic that you unearthed and cite in this book, from 1917 to 1921, 58 Black homes or residences were bombed because the residents or owners of those properties were black people who had moved to overwhelmingly white neighborhoods. And the police did almost nothing in response to this spate over four years of bombings of black homes where people had dared to move a bit outside of the quote-unquote black belt. Black folks organize around these bombings to essentially begin trying to do the work that the police should technically be doing. I mean, that, you know, you have local organizers that essentially try to launch investigations into who's behind these bombings. In other words, doing what we would think the police should be doing. You also have other Black people who talk about arming themselves to, you know, protect their own homes and businesses. You know, the same thing happens in the 1940s and 50s when Black people are again moving into and within the city and moving into previously white neighborhoods where white people are engaged in straight up terrorism against these people when they're moving into white neighborhoods. I mean, you know, that includes arson, it includes overturning cars, it includes beatings, and you know, I mean, it's all sorts of different terrorist methods to prevent integration of city neighborhoods. You know, when civil rights leaders in Chicago in 1955, for example, are holding memorial rallies for Emmett Till after he's lynched in Mississippi. The body was shipped home, back north to Chicago, where Mamie Till Bradley insisted on an open casket funeral. So all the world can see, she said, what they did to my boy. They tie directly the lynching of Emmett Till in Mississippi to the ongoing terrorism that white mobs are visiting upon black people in Chicago and the failure of the police department in Chicago to actually protect them from those terrorist mobs. There's an interesting linkage that black organizers are making between terrorism in Mississippi and terrorism in Chicago and the fact that Mayor Richard Daley, who's newly elected in that moment, you know, that he issues a condemnation of the of the lynching of Emmett Till, but refuses to actually respond to Black demands in Chicago for the police department to actually keep Black people safe. At the time of the 1919 race riot, as you document in the book, this started 
when a group of young black men, kids, were in a part of Lake Michigan that was unofficially the black section, and they had gone out on a raft, and the tide starts to kind of sweep them southward toward the white area of the beach, and a white man starts pelting their boat with rocks and stones. They lose control of the raft. One of the young men goes under and dies. No one responds to go and get him. His friends come ashore and they approach a black Chicago police officer and try to identify this man as being the culprit who was pummeling them with these rocks and stones. And then a white officer intervenes and then that man is let go. But that sparked what would become known as the race riots of 1919. So Simon, pick it up from there. Chicago in some ways was, you know, already a bit of a tinderbox. People were pretty clear in the aftermath of of these, you know, riots that ultimately killed 38 people. People were pretty clear that the reason why it all started was really the this white police officer named Daniel Callahan. It was his refusal to allow an arrest of a white murderer that really set everything off. You know, so over the coming days, the city essentially descends into, you know, what people call a race riot, but was essentially white marauders going through uh, mostly black parts of the South Side, white mobs terrorizing and killing black people, and then black people taking up arms to respond to this terrorism. So lay out sort of what happens throughout the 20s and into the early 30s regarding Chicago police and the growing black population of the city. This is a a period of time in which the Republican machine and the Democratic machine are really vying for control of the city. And it's during this moment by the end of the 1920s that the democratic political machine that we, you know, has a stranglehold on Chicago really emerges from the fray as being the political machine that's going to control the city's future. When that political machine coheres and asserts its dominance, it's really disinterested and actually actively hostile to black people because black voters had traditionally been voting Republican. And so At that founding moment of this powerful machine, it's organized really with no interest in responding at all to Black grievances or Black needs or anything like that. And that manifests in the police department because the political machine really has extraordinary amounts of control over the police. Democratic politicians, you know, essentially appoint their friends and neighbors and family members to positions on the police force. You know, you get people that have essentially no qualifications for the job other than just knowing the right people. The Democratic machine totally distorts and twists the demographics of the police force and how the police actually operate to the advantage of white uh, neighborhoods and the disadvantage of black ones. Um, And this is a story that continues to unfold and manifest over time in the coming decades. And part also of what the democratic machine is doing during that moment is asserting, quote unquote, law and order over, again, people who are deemed to be politically radical. That manifests most strikingly in the ways that it treats and responds to Black communist organizers on the South Side. In the emergent early years of the Great Depression, the Communist Party is extraordinarily active on Chicago's South Side. And it's really, really active in terms of battling austerity measures that the city is putting in place. Where this takes shape most clearly is in anti-eviction organizing. It's a moment in which the police power is asserting itself to control black radical organizing, but it's also a moment in time in which there's some pretty astute and important uh, resistance to the assertion of that authority. By the mid-60s, you write that the Chicago Police Department was supported politically by members of both major parties, was flush with cash, and possessed extraordinary power and autonomy. How did the Chicago Police Department ultimately gain and grow its political power, which endures to this day, starting in the in the mid-60s? There's all of this momentum in the 1960s to really lobby for increasing police power. 
So the police department in, in most of the 1960s is overseen by a guy named Orlando Wilson. And Wilson is, you know, one of the most esteemed criminal justice minds in the country when he's hired as the superintendent of the CPD. What Wilson does is he, you know, modernizes and professionalizes the department, but he also makes pretty explicit the ways in which the police are going to be instruments of racial control. There's a a really striking document that I found in his papers, which are housed at Berkeley, where he makes a very explicit argument for an increased budgetary allotment for the police department so that they can hire more people based solely and explicitly upon the fact that Chicago is getting blacker. So essentially, you know, they use predictive modeling of population growth to say, look, Chicago is going to get X percentage more young black people coming into the city for the remainder of the 1960s. And so we need an equivalent budgetary increase to hire more police officers. By that point in time in the 1960s, the police department, generally speaking, is is an institution whose attentions are focused overwhelmingly on controlling black people and black spaces. And by that point in time, white people just sort of assume that that is the legitimate reason for the police to exist. And it's during that moment in time where police repressions and police attentions are focusing increasingly and overwhelmingly on black parts of the city. And so I don't think it's a coincidence that that is when, you know, the budgetary allotments begin to explode because, you know, that's seen as, as a legitimate police function. In the midst of this scene that you're describing, you have the emergence of the Black Panther Party in Chicago. Talk about their efforts to curb violence in their community, but also to confront the Chicago Police Department. And it ultimately culminates with the assassination of Black Panther Party leaders Fred Hampton and Mark Clark in December of 69. But talk about the rise of the Black Panthers and the response of the Chicago police and power structure during the 60s. What the Panthers were really concerned about was curbing structural violence, you know, through the implementation of things like uh, free breakfast for children program in Chicago, free community health clinic for people whose medical needs were, were not being met, free programs to bus family members to visit incarcerated loved ones. I mean, that these are all programs that the Panthers in Chicago put into effect with pretty remarkable success. And they were also really concerned with building cross-racial alliances and solidarities with other organizations. This included working with white organizations, with Puerto Rican organizations, to really try to identify common points of structural oppression and violence and try to figure out ways to mitigate them. When the Panthers are organizing alongside comrades from other organizations, in 1969 particularly, the level of state repression that is visited upon these efforts is overwhelming. I mean, the the assassination of Fred Hampton and Mark Clark is the culmination of really a years-long violent campaign that the Chicago Police Department, with the assistance of the FBI, waged against the Panthers. The Panthers' headquarters are frequently raided. Supplies that they have acquired to feed kids in the Free Breakfast for Children program are burned by the police. Fred Hampton was widely identified as one of the most promising political organizers, not just in Chicago, but in the country. What makes them mad about it is that they had black people and white poor people and red poor people and Puerto Rican poor people and Latin American Puerto Rican people, of, uh, poor people of all descents. They had them caught up in movements based on racism when the Black Panther Party stood up and said that we don't care what anybody says. We don't think you fight fire with fire best. We think you fight fire with water best. We're going to fight racism, not with racism, but we're going to fight with solidarity. We said we're not going to fight capitalism with black capitalism, but we're going to fight it with socialism. You know, and he's only 21 years old when he's assassinated. The political components of the tragedy really are couched in the fact that the things that he was able to do were really seeing some significant successes in the city. And the Panthers, in a lot of ways, are gutted by the assassination of Fred Hampton. So in the wake of his assassination, there are dozens of organizations that are founded across the city, you know, inspired by his memory to really try to confront 
police brutality as it exists primarily in black and brown communities. And the Panthers continue to be parts of those efforts. And I think the most important initiative that came out of that was in the early 70s, what's left of the Black Panther Party in Chicago organizes a citywide coalition to fight for community control of the police. What community control of the police looked like has a whole variety of different components. Part of it was exactly what it sounds like in terms of not necessarily abolishing the police, but radically reimagining the police, decentralizing the police, and essentially neighborhoods having control over what policing looked like within their particular neighborhoods. But I think that the really important component to what community control looked like in the eyes of that coalition was what we would today identify as defunding the police. At that point in time, the Chicago Police Department's budget had grown to over $300 million a year. It's now $1.7 billion a year. So when they looked at that $300 million budget line for the Chicago police, part of what they were calling for with community control was to take a significant portion of that investment in the police and putting it into other things, putting it into schools, putting it into job trainings, putting it into community health and so on and so forth. From all of the scholarship that you've done, deeply looking at the history of the Chicago police, primarily up to 1970, what are the big takeaways from your research that you can share with people to understand the way that current police forces operate and their relationship with Black people, Black property, Black communities? I think that the first one that people should be thinking about is that the fundamental premise that the police exist and the police were brought into existence to like, quote unquote, protect us or keep us safe, that's a myth. You know, the police in Chicago and elsewhere were first put into place in order to protect capital and to protect racial hierarchies. And so when we think about the ways in which police forces currently operate, if we know that as the founding uh, story of police, I think that the way that they operate makes a whole lot more sense because they're essentially continuing to do now what they were founded to do, which is to protect capital and to protect racial hierarchy. The second big takeaway that I would say is that, you know, when we think about the problems of policing and why policing doesn't work, at least doesn't work how people like to think it does, you know, when we look at how Black communities like Chicago's experience policing, it's a two-sided story. I mean, so on the one hand, it's a story of being over-policed, so of being subject to, you know, constant harassment, constant surveillance, constant violence, including torture. All of that happens, while at the same time, Black communities do not actually experience much in the way of supposed public safety. You know, so when we think about, you know, communities that are the most subject to intercommunal violence, you know, the communities that are the least safe, they're also the communities that are the most over-policed. And so it raises the question of what's the point? People like Trump and others enjoy looking at Chicago's gun violence and saying, well, look at that gun violence. This is why we need police. Chicago's an example. It's like worse than Afghanistan. It's worse than, I shouldn't say because they're working with us, Honduras, Guatemala. But actually, when we look at Chicago's gun violence and the long history of it, the fact that the Chicago Police Department almost never is able to arrest people who commit homicides. I mean, the clearance rate for homicides in Chicago is below 20%. Really what the story is, is that policing doesn't work. If this gun violence is so relentless and so untethered to actual police presences, it's actually a total refutation of the idea that policing works. You know, I think it's important to understand that we are part of a long lineage of people who have struggled with and, you know, rejected the legitimacy of police power as it exists and as it is visited upon communities of color in the United States, that people who are out in the streets right now calling for defunding and abolition or people who are contributing to, you know, financially to those causes and things like that, it's part of a tradition of protest against police violence that, you know, has been going on for longer than any of us have been alive. Simon Balto, thank you so much for being with us here on Intercepted. Thanks so much, Jeremy. It's been a pleasure. Simon Balto is author of the new book, Occupied Territory, Policing Black Chicago from Red Summer to Black Power. It's published by the University of North Carolina Press. 
He is also an assistant professor of history and African-American studies at the University of Iowa. You can find him on Twitter at Simon Balto. And that does it for this week's show. You can follow us on Twitter at Intercepted and on Instagram at Intercepted Podcast. Intercepted is a production of First Look Media and The Intercept. Our lead producer is Jack Desidoro. Our producer is Laura Flynn. Elise Swain is our associate producer and graphic designer. Betsy Reed is editor-in-chief of The Intercept. I want to offer a very heartfelt goodbye and a deep debt of gratitude is owed to our managing editor, Charlotte Greensit, who is moving on to join The New York Times. Charlotte has always been one of the biggest promoters and supporters of this program, and we wish her all the best as she starts a new, exciting adventure. Rick Kwan mixed the show. Transcription for this program is done by Lucy Croning. Our music, as always, was composed by DJ Spooky. Until next week, I'm Jeremy Scahill. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.